So good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Visiting with Me and Chancy here on a cool Sunday morning. Good morning, Brad. Good morning, everyone. Thanks to all y'all listening out there. Um, glad to be back with you. Another cold morning. Not as bad this morning as it was the last few days. No, not near as bad as it has been this earlier this week. We've been down in the 20s here in Central Texas this week, and even a little bit possibly colder than that, depending on how high you were on the hill. Yeah, I know Thursday was a booger bear. When that norther blew in, and it was, all day long was cold and windy. Just not a fun day to be out and about. Man, it was not a fun day to be out and about. Uh, we're starting to warm up a little bit today, so hopefully we won't have to drain the pipes tonight. Maybe if we can get past one day of not having to do that. But uh, we're welcoming you back, and hopefully you've been enjoying our series so far on whitetail deer and management of whitetail deer and the different characteristics and traits of and the things that, that deer need and do. Uh, so we're going to pick right back up today where we left off last time and talk a little bit about the nutrition of the whitetail deer which is a very important factor as far as whitetail deer management go and the the lifestyle of whitetail deer. Uh, I think as Chancey said, what did you tell me the three factors are that, that affect whitetail deer? Oh, yeah, well, especially when people start thinking about bucks. Uh, but, you know, when you think of the three legs or the three pillars, you always hear age, genetics, and nutrition. Age, genetics, nutrition. And a lot of that's really when they're talking about antler quality and size. But nutrition, as we mentioned last week, was it's absolutely fundamental. It's fundamental for a young deer and our mother deer and the, the bucks. And nutrition's a very broad topic. I mean, there's, you can't really fine-tune it. And be quite honest with you, even though whitetail deer are the most studied animal well maybe not the most studied animal on face of earth but a lot of money goes into white tail deer we don't know a whole lot about deer nutrition we really don't and there's several reasons for that one of the reasons are deer kind of hard to study as far as they're they're not really domesticated white tail deer so you put them in pens they herd like cats they don't do even if they're tame they don't adapt well to things that we would put on them where a lot of nutritionists study nutrition as far as intake and digestibility like a fistula or a fecal bag they don't adapt well to anything hanging on them or doing real well. Yes, and to give you a story on what Chancey's talking about, uh, when I worked at A&M years ago, we had old Holstein cow that, that ran out in the pasture that they did nutrition studies with, and basically this cow had like a submarine window that went down into her rumen, and is what we would do was we would do digestion studies and things like that with this cow. Now, don't get me wrong, I know what you're thinking. That, oh, God, how could they do this to a cow? But this cow had the life now. I mean, <laughs> gentle as could be uh, is what we would do. We would take, like, different different uh, feed rations or different types of things and put them into these bag, little uh, bags that we would literally reach down inside of a room and, sure. and put this bag inside of a room. And, and a day or two days later, you would pull this bag back out to see what was left of it yeah. or, or you how. You watch that whole process. It's fascinating. It is. That. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so so I forget the cow's name, but that was one of my jobs in college was taking care of that cow. That's cool. Yeah, it was. And But you can't do that with a deer. No, no. We're not going to go out to the pasture and catch a deer and put a halter on it and, and bring it back to the barn and and like I said, you know, you like especially with a white-tailed deer, they just don't domesticate like we said, like a reindeer did, you know, or something. So they don't domest, they don't do well like that. Then not only that, they're a native game species, so they're regulated, you know, by Tex Parks and Wildlife. You have to have certain permits if you're going to do anything, and it takes large exposures to study deer, and you need large sample sizes. So a lot of deer, you know, to get the best data rather than just taking one or two. And then not only that. And this is maybe some biased on my opinion. 
But it's also the truth as far as it goes to, like, seems like more people are more interested in population dynamics or f- other factors in deer management versus nutrition. I think that's part of it too. But I also think the overlying thing is deer being a wild animal and we know and we keep saying habitat, 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 habitat. It really pulls down to if you've got good quality habitat, Nutrition takes care of itself, for, you know. Well, for especially the, on for a the good year. Part. On a good wet year, for the most part, and you don't have too many deer. You're you're within your carrying capacity. You're not overrun with animals, for the most part, and you're you got good quality habitat. It takes care of itself, you know, nutrition wise for deer. For now, that's not to say some of them ain't gonna die in the winter time, because, you know, that's just life. You know, some of them were meant to die anyway. You know, if yes. you look at a population across the board, you've always got. You know, the really old and the really young or the, the injured. That got injured, whatever. Some of them are just naturally going to die. No matter what you put out there for them. Yes, no matter what. Some of them are just naturally going to die. So, you know, like that being said, we're going to brush on a lot of this stuff regarding nutrition, but I want all of the listeners to be aware, you know, there's some, I'm not going to say controversy, but there's some discussion open for this exactly. What? deer need and the amounts they need because it's going to vary seasonally for these animals and, and it also and varies, by location if i look if it varies by sex whether they're male or female their nutrition it varies the age, age yes yeah fawns need a different nutrition than an adult deer does it varies whether they're growing what kind of stuff they select what they need as far as nutritional it changes from seasons you know they need a different nutritional requirements in the winter versus summer Absolutely, and uh, and even t- at different times of the reproduction cycle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they need a certain pregnancy, lactation, like we talked about last time with the reproduction. They need a different nutrition. They select different things, you know, based on the timing and all those varying factors that we've got. So, like I said, and I know wildlife biologists are notorious for saying it depends, but it truly it depends. does depend. Well, you speaking of the age thing, do deer lose their teeth kind of like cattle do at a certain point? Well, they do at certain ages, yeah. Like, well. So that affects the their nutritional baby teeth, requirement. Their baby teeth, they will lose, kind of just like baby teeth like we have. Sure. You know? So, you know, when a fawn's born, it doesn't have all of its teeth. And then by usually around 20 months old, they'll lose that first tricuspid, which is what we go off to age like yearling deer. And like the first tricuspid, what I'm talking about is the three-cusp tooth. It was the fawn's back molar, basically, when it was a baby. And they generally will lose that tooth around 20 months old. And then it's replaced with, like, the very first tooth that you start aging with. But deer are just like people. I've, I've studied too many. Well, I've looked at too many deer teeth and known and watched them from year to year. Some of them have good teeth and some of them have bad teeth. It varies. Just uh, like I'm sure it depends on even soil, soil types. Soil type, sand, whether yes. they wear. Also, deer typically in more highly protein fed diets like where they're doing lots of supplement their teeth seem to last longer they really do because they don't have to graze in the dirt near their much. dirt sand as much you know and that like there's some evidence that suggests that deer in sandy land that's eating you know brush or down low and under graze where they're having to get right on the ground that their deer their teeth wear sooner than a deer in clay soils like in the black land that doesn't have the sand component well i know that's true with cattle and yeah. it's true with horses the sand and it makes sense even your equipment yeah like your equipment your, i was thinking discs oh you know, a disc at, yeah uh, the sand d- eats up your blades on your hay cutters yeah if you up. want to shine up your hay cutter go cut some hay in, in some sandy ground yeah those gophers will really help boy you i mean yeah. they will it'll slick it up man yeah. i mean compared it'll to the shiny. <laughs> compared to the ant beds and the black dirt yeah. that you know really get stuck in cake and make a mess the sand will shine anything up but it probably wears the teeth down 
on animals too. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, it does. So I don't think there's like a set time. And like I said, I've watched enough deer and killed enough deer and looked at their enough deer teeth that I knew how old they were that I learned real quick that, well, that deer didn't read the book. He wasn't reading the same book that I was taught. You know? <laughs> like, so that's where it goes. The thing and that reason biologists do do tooth wear and replacement is because what it does tell us is it breaks those deer down into young, middle-aged, mature, or even post-mature, so four possibly. And that's all you really need to know to manage yes. deer herd. You don't need to know if that deer is really, or bucks, three and a half or four and a half. You just need to know he's middle-aged. That's exactly what right. percentage, so... That's what it does, and that's where it helps. And nutritionally, that's important. Absolutely, it is. Because the younger ones, as they're growing, need a uh, need more calories, need more energy, yeah, need more, more protein. More protein because they're growing the long growth. So it changes seasonally. The, uh, the, the the contents that they need, it varies by season, and it varies the intake over the course of the year, like timing. So the key is habitat and diversity. You get back to habitat, habitat and diversity. That's the key, I guess, if there's a – Secret to the great deer nutrition that's out there. It's habitat that it, that you need habitat that provides an abundance of diverse, high-quality shrubs and forbs, like what we said, browse, which is your shrubs, and forbs, your weeds and wildflowers. It allows the deer to be selective throughout the year because if you think about it, some plants are only flowering in the spring and early summer. Some are flowering in the fall and late summer some of them like mast is only produced for some things some mast is only like acorns is only produced in the fall and that depends on the species of the plant so if you got a diverse plant species out there a bunch of them that generally means that there's something being high quality food throughout the growing season you know from spring to summer usually now when drought comes we don't have our forbs or when drought comes in the late summer, a lot of our forbs are burned, burned up. So that's where you can start thinking, you know, maybe possibly a supplement put in there. Or, you know, year-round, like we talked about, uh, from January to February, the growing times of, of deer, depending on drought, carrying, as long as you're in your carrying capacity. So diversity and plants is key. Habitat, habitat, habitat. comes back to those three things. Well, would this be a good place to talk about the different types of plants, maybe, that are important to... Well, yeah, well, we kind of covered that in food back in one of the episodes. But I guess if you wanted to break down, like I said, yeah, we might as well. So keep, let's just go into key browse plants. I know we covered browse last time, but as I said, biologists, we're always looking at the browse. That is the backbone of deer habitat, your woody species. And the reason it is, even though they prefer forbs, forbs are not reliable. So we rely on our browse to tell us, what kind of habitat we've got out there. So the more species of browse, woody plants you have out there, that gives more selectivity to deer as far as what they can eat from season to season to season because they'll also eat the mast of some of this browse species, and some of that mast is produced in late winter. Some of it's produced in the early fall. And, you know, looking at a list of these browse, you know, first-choice plants that for deer, yeah. Uh, I guess, I mean, our area has a lot of different browse. Yes. Uh, yeah. Browse species. Now you get to other parts of the state yeah. where there's more cedars and... and be very limited. And that a lot of that has to do on past land use history. But if we were just... So to go back to browse right quick, and I'll just touch up on one of your point, but we usually rank browse in three categories. Basically, your first choice browse, your second choice browse, and your third choice browse. And that's all based on what we know from watching deer, from studying deer, to protein content in this browse at different times of the year, what they prefer to eat, what they eat. Like if they were at Luby's Cafeteria and their browse was laid out there, this is what they're going after. 
And uh, it probably depends on the like this this first, second, and third choice depends on what area of the state you're in too. Yes, yeah, so the first choice in Central Texas is not going to be a first choice in let's say West Texas. Yes, because they probably don't exist. Yeah, it's very true. Well, you know, like one of our first choice plants or two of them is cedar elm and hackberry. I know we cuss hackberries a lot because they're long lived, but from a wildlife standpoint, from birds to deer to little animals, hackberry is super important. Deer love to eat it, but it's also first choice in South Texas. But in South Texas, they have lots of plants that we don't have that are first choice, but they just don't occur here in Central Texas. So we have different first, a lot of our first choice plants are the same if they occur in the same ecoregions um, or in differing ecoregions, but some of them are different and are ecoregion specific. Like South, one of the main brush species down in South Texas is Grand Hanyo. You know, it's a good first quality or choice that they use in the camp. We use a lot of Grand Hanyo doing browse service, but another one's kidney wood. And kidney wood, you're only going to see that in South Texas and in the Hill Country. You start getting into it a little bit, like, you know, in the Blackland Prairie, a little bit. I've seen it in the Blackland Prairie, but very rarely. Like, only I can think, I know one time I've observed kidney wood in the Blackland Prairie, and it was over there around San Gabriel on some rolling rocky hills. I've never seen it anywhere. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I just haven't seen it. It's more abundant in the Hill Country and in South Texas, and deer love it. It's an ice cream plant. These first-choice plants... They're eating whenever deer find them, regardless of the season. If they they're not going to walk past it. No, they call it an ice cream plant because they're that's what they eat. So cedar elm, you know, we mentioned one, uh, hackberry, but other ones out there. Um, Most of the things that'll be the first thing growing on your fence line. Yeah, a lot of them's birds. So a lot of them shrubs. Your cotegas. Uh, a lot of these first choice plants uh, produce droops fruits that birds uh, yes. deposit you know so think of mexican plum a lot of your plums that's a good good choice a uh, trumpet creeper which is a vine it's also a great hummingbird plant trumpet creeper's got a beautiful vine but virginia creeper is a good one it doesn't so much bloom really really pretty but it's got a beautiful leaf to it you know poison ivy is one that really oh, they love me. it they love it you know like it's poisonous to us but i've just seen deer camp out on it it's smilax too your green briars now there's one one or two species of green briars they don't eat but for the most part growing green briar it's good deer food man highly nutritious they get after it and it's so you know in the winter time we go out there and we look at these first choice and second choice browse plants to see use on them to uh-huh. see how much they're being eaten some of these plants can eventually be killed by overuse i mean and having a diversity of these plants gives you an idea how well your habitat you have a whole lot of them and you got a lot of bottom land and a lot of these plants occur in your bottom we already mentioned that the bottom lands are already more fertile anyway due to flooding parent material breakdown and then the, the flooding deposits you know high quality soil habitat grows highly diverse high quality plants so if you have a lot of these in your bottom land that's why some of your bottom lands have you can run a higher carrying capacity they support a higher carrying capacity in some of your uplands. And these are a big reason for that. Yeah, a lot of your diversity in plants, a lot of it sometimes comes from, you know, your soil, fertile soil. So a lot of these plants are bottomland species if you look at it, you know, like your trumpet creepers. and Or I shouldn't say bottomland, but more mesic, more of a mesic type plant. You just don't see them growing way up on top of hills. And, and the biggest like time of the year you would find your biggest advantage, your biggest benefit, I guess, from these browse be summer, huh? Yeah, they're really getting them in the spring, summer when they're actively growing. But then they also hit them, like I said, if there's no supplemental feed out there, no winter food plots or anything like that. They rely on this browse as the backbone. When they do eat, now their consumption goes down. But they, they rely. This is, the, this is their meat and potatoes, the browse. To their, it provides them cover, but, but also provides them a good high-quality food source in spring and summer when they're actively growing. Or if they get spring, fall rain, some of them actively grow in the fall. They'll hit them, but then also when they're not growing, they'll still will browse 
the twigs of in the winter, the winter twigs, because you got to remember, even though they're high in lignin and cellulose, the deer's ruminant, so it can break down those lignins and celluloses in these winter twigs, and they can get something useful out of it, very and, useful. And that's a good point that you bring up because this goes back to deer being ruminants, like you said, and they do have the ability to utilize a lot of the the uh, the cellulose and lignin and uh, that monogastrics or things like us can't exactly utilize. No, yeah, so having them, the fact that deer are, I get they're they're ruminant. They're like a souped-up magnum goat. You know that's what they are. So they metabolize and doesn't take the, the food doesn't stay in the rumen as long as like a cow or a goat, which we've talked about earlier. But it all goes back to them being a ruminant as why they're selective and they choose the different things. Yes, and they need these things like you were talking about, like the little twigs and 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 these high fiber things. Before we recorded this, we talked to a friend of mine, uh, Lee Williams. He's a nutritionist for. Uh, for Neutrina, uh, Cargill, who we get all of, all our feed from here at the feed store, and he got to talking about the scratch factor uh, being a, being an important thing as far as feeds go with cattle and deer, likewise, being so they're both ruminants. And you know the brow these these uh, uh, these these woody brows probably have a pretty high scratch factor. I would yeah, think. and that's I I'd never heard that term, but it makes sense to me. I mean, I'm glad it was. It was enlightening to me. I mean, it makes sense. Like I said, I the scratch factor how it helps stimulate. And, yes. You know, he also mentioned that deer didn't need vitamin C because they make it all in their own with their ruminant, which I'd never, I didn't know that. Yeah, know? vitamin C and vitamin B. B complex. Yeah, they're ruminant. The little microorganisms and those microorganisms are using that fiber from these plants that, like Brad said, like monogastrics, like us and uh, pigs, they can't. We can't do that. Of, can't take advantage of, but these this fiber is also super important. Just the basic function of the rumen to make it work like to it works. Make it work and have the bugs in there, the little the little bugs that do all this work. And see, you're supposed so this what this scratch factor is. Uh, whenever a ruminant eats these different things, like for instance, whenever a baby calf is born, well, his rumen is not functioning yet, so they they don't get any benefit from going out and grazing on their second day of life because because they are, they can't digest the grasses and that type of stuff yet. So it's uh, it it happens over time. It it develops and starts to work. But that's why it's important to give full access to these baby calves and stuff to long stem forages like oh, hay and different things like that yeah. because they eat it and it goes to start scratching their rumen and it starts to to kick this whole ruminating process in the gear and i guess they never lose that as they age because uh likewise these deer a lot well he went so lee went into talking about things like like uh cottonseed holes versus rice rice holes, rice holes. Mm -hmm. okay so cottonseed holes have a much higher scratch factor uh, they're bulkier. Uh, they have a much larger particle size, and so as what happens is, their stomach contracts, the muscles contract, and as they do that, will this this fiber, these fibrous plants or these different things like the deer are eating start to scratch the sides of the rumen, and then this this in turn starts the whole process of rumination, and was what makes the ruminant special. Uh, and the way they die, the reason they digest things the way that they digest things. When you go to talking about those brows and stuff, I guess that's important to point that out. Yeah. Is that they're important for that reason? Because uh, you go to eating little forbs and stuff like that, very low yeah, scratch they don't factor have that there. Scratch factor. So not only is this brows, like you just said, which is, it's important from a food standpoint for protein and nutrition, but also the rumen needs fiber itself just to be a rumen, you know, just to function as a rumen. Like you take rumen out of the process or fiber out of the whole process, even though they don't get anything like, 
protein-wise from the fresh growing, they need the fiber in there for the rumen to function in the first place, the scratch factor, like you just said. And the big part of that yeah. comes from these brows. Yes, very much so. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and so, like you said before, I mean, the secret to to the great deer nutrition is is all coming from the habitat. That's a good place that you find those those brows at. And likewise, another very important thing. Well, that you don't really think about when you think about nutrition is yeah. water. Yeah, it's it's the most critical nutrient of all nutrients. I know we talked a lot about water when we did uh the you know food cover water space the limiting factors, but it's a nutrient. So I think that we need to mention it in nutrition, particularly that's probably the most important because none of this other stuff that we're talking about works without water. So just to show you how critical it is, a, a deer. Deer's whitetail, a whitetail deer's rumen contains 60 to 70% water at all times. Even during drought, you know, they need water. That rumen's mostly full of water. Yeah, uh, I think it, I actually think that a whitetail deer's uh, rumen can hold a little over two gallons, yeah, I think. Yeah, I've heard between one to two gallons, depending on, you know, age of the deer. And just in general, a lot of mammals, especially even us, you know, approximately 70, 75% of the deer's complete entire body is water. You know, and, and then... How critical it is for survival, they can die in as little as three days without water, whereas they can go probably a month without food. As you know, back to talking, speaking of that uh, two gallon rumen of a deer, we talked about, you know, how fast stuff passes sure. through a deer's rumen, and that's the reason they have a different diet compared to cows. Well, I think a cow's rumen is 25 gallons, I think, is what I, yeah. uh, I was looking up to that. So, a pretty big difference there. But again, water is very important for, for all life, mm -hmm. but especially. Uh, when you go to talking about nutrition, you can't help but, but mention it because nothing can go very long, can live very long without it. Yeah, but not a, like they can't live without it, but it's also critical in their digestion. You know, like uh, it helps metabolize the water. Just if you, It's critical. One of those critical nutrients out there that it just affects everything. Like if they've done a lot of research, I don't remember the exact details, where they just reduce the, like have studied deer, reduce water a little bit even moderately not a whole much just let them not have as much water as they would like and it changes it changes the way they eat they eat less they just they'll go off feed you know they'll they'll stop eating altogether because it just goes to show it's critical well people with horses and cattle will come in the feed store all the time and everybody has their own trick to making their horses or their cattle drink more water and the reason they want them to drink more water is so that they'll eat more food Yes, it, it goes hand in hand together. Raising chickens, you know, we sure. raise a lot of chickens. Like, they drink a ton of water in relation to the amount of feed, food that they eat. Yes. As you know, it's one of those things, water is probably the most critical thing out there. But sometimes, unfortunately, I think it kind of gets overlooked. We kind of take it for granted. But it's fascinating what really, and it's, it's tied. I mean, and deer need free service water as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, I mean, they'll they'll drink anywhere from three to six quarts a day, depending on the temperature. Well, you know, that's about, you know, they say for us to be healthy that we need to drink. You, nowadays, you see a lot of health conscious people. Yeah. Walking around with their gallon jug of water. Yes, sir. With the lines on it, you know, you're supposed to drink this much by this time of the day and mm -hmm. to where you, you try to get in a gallon of water a day. Yeah, well, I plant uh, native grass for a doctor in uh, Austin, and he uh, told me, bang for your buck. You know, health-wise, he's one of those holistic, real healthy kind of type doctors. He said, bang for your buck, drink as much water as you can. That will help you with all kinds of health issues down the road daily. Health, he's like, water is so critically environment important for us and people don't drink enough yeah we talk about that after drinking coffee all morning <laughs> yes yeah it i mean but it it is the truth you know you, you you're it's funny how your brain like plays all these games with you you know you need water 
but yet you go get a cup of coffee or you go get a soda or you get something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I wonder how animals and stuff, water is pretty much the only thing that they that they drink, you know. I mean, yeah. from a health standpoint, I wonder how much more healthy they are than we are. Or if they could, if they had the choice to drink soda or water, if they would choose the soda over the water. It kind of makes me think about stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But water is important, but so is so is protein. Yes, sir. Protein, we can cover protein. It's uh, super important. And you mentioned the last, and I think you, with your background, you know, you've discussed how it's made up of, you know, nitrogen-containing compounds called amino acids. You had mentioned that earlier. Yes, spoke about that in the last episode. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in ruminants like deer are unique in that they can synthesize their own amino acids. Like a, a, a ruminant can utilize what we call urea, which is a protein source in feeds. It's called a non-protein nitrogen source, NPN is what it's called. These deer and these cattle with their rumens, they can, they can utilize this urea with their rumens. Uh, whereas, likewise, monogastrics, you can't put it. So, urea is a big component in some of these lick tubs that we use. And they're great for cattle and stuff, especially this time of the year because the little ruminant microbes, little bugs inside of a stomach, they really feed off of this urea. It energizes them. It makes them work harder. And so, the benefit of that is, well, what do we have outside right now? We have a lot of dormant grasses, mm-hmm. a lot of low digestible grasses, I guess you would say. Well, this urea... And, kind of energizes the little ruminant microbes and it gets those things working to where they get more out of this poor if you have poor quality hay it helps with that like Mm -hmm. a lot of years when the only thing we have to feed is like corn stalks and that kind of stuff helps with that you don't see it a lot in deer feed for whatever reason well i don't think they can utilize it number one that it it passes too fast that's probably what the reason is the diversity of microorganisms that that cows do have. So they probably don't can't utilize urea in the same fashion that a cow can just because they're both ruminants, but one of them is a lot more, for lack of a better word, a cow's probably more efficient. You know, it lasts longer, whereas a deer is a, more of a specialist. You know, that's why it's going after those high protein stuff already, the twigs and the branches, the growing parts. And so when deer, when I think of protein, it they break down into like degradable protein and undegradable protein and uh, basically, degradable protein is just it's proteins that are rapidly broken down by the little bugs in the st- in the rumen and are reformed in amino acids called microbial protein, and then that then gets digested into the abomasum when it leaves the rumen, which is like the stomach of the deer, the true mm-hmm. stomach. The undegradable ones they don't break down in the rumen, but rather they break down later in the in the abomasum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you know, like we said before, that is kind of unique to a rumen. Uh, to a ruminant animal, I guess is what I was trying to say. Uh, during the winter time, they don't need near as much protein as what they need during the time of the year when they're raising a baby. I guess you would say. Again, it goes back to I guess male, female, sure, all H-tub. that kind of stuff. But during the winter time, typically they don't need as much protein, huh? No, they they don't. They can get by with much less protein uh, in the winter time. You know, I mean, they've done lots of studies. You know, deer can survive on low protein diets. They don't do as well. They don't grow as healthy. They don't get as big antlers or produce enough milk, but uh, they can get by just maintaining themselves. Well, like you said before, they, they've done the studies and you can raise deer on straight corn. Yeah. But, but they don't do very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they can survive. Me and you could survive on a straight corn diet, I guess, if we had to, but you know, I don't know if we could or not. You know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we could or, or not either, but, 
but uh, uh, but they've done the studies and and with with deer, of course, like yeah, or, it can. when I say a corn, a straight corn diet, I, I mainly think of a low protein diet. So like a diet that's just eight percent, which is roughly what corn is. You yes, know? yes, to say 18, seven eight percent, yeah, something like that. It can survive on it, but they don't do well. And, and a it's low, really important. They don't, you know, maybe produce as much milk because lactation it places the greatest demand on deer for protein. So those mothers. When they start lactating, and that's when they need lots and lots and lots of protein. And sadly, that seems to be the time of the year when a lot of people don't have it out. Well, you know, when they're lactating, it's generally going to be when they're producing milk. So that's in the yes, summertime. Uh, yes. So, yeah, and, and so the, hopefully you're feeding as a supplement. If you are going to be feeding as a supplement. That's you know, the time of the year to do it. Yeah. Yeah, late winter, spring. Now, as nature designed it, that's a great thing because because you've got all these little, little – uh, uh, forbs that are growing there in the summertime. Yeah, when you she's got lactating, some... it's usually May, June for us, and that's usually good rainfall, lots of lush vegetation, the browse is growing, lots of food out there. Yes. With... Especially if you've got quality, diverse habitat with lots of plants. You've got a lot of high-quality food out there, so long as it rains good. And even if it doesn't rain good, a lot of those woody plants will still grow some. You might not have the forbs, but they still will grow. That's not to say that, okay, we need to keep a supplemental feed out because on a good year with the right number of deer and all, you wouldn't need the supplemental feed anyway. It's it's more of a of a as-needed instead of a... I think so because there is a lot of data that suggests, and I've seen it firsthand. In really wet years, because we feed protein, I look at it as, a, like I've said before, I think it as a supplement to a healthy habitat. So I'm for, if it's in your budget, it means a feeding, supplemental feed. Whether it's food plots, whether it's supplemental feed, pelleted feed, I'm in favor with it. But that's not to say that you should use it to increase the carrying capacity of your land. That's mismanagement. You should never use protein to run more animals. You should think of it like it says, a supplement. Really important to have it out there during those times, you know, especially in, in, in drought years, I would think. Yes, because if, if, a, if a doe doesn't have enough protein, she'll produce less milk. What does less milk equal? Less, well, less milk, milk equals less, less food babies, for a baby. Less fawns. Fawn uh, crops a weaker fawn crop, yes. Yeah, because what's neat about, like, the protein I was heard, um, they're talking about. So if you have less protein in the diet, it's not so much that they produce, like, le- or worse quality, poor quality milk. They still produce good quality milk, but they don't make enough of it. They don't make near enough of it. They may not make enough milk to feed one farm. Because they're, they're, they don't have enough protein in the diet. An animal first has to stay alive themselves yes. and then feed the young. And so if there's a, if there's a limiting of anything, the baby's going to be the first thing to suffer. Huh? Oh, absolutely. Just like uh, deer, say, from a buck standpoint with antlers. They take care of their body first. and then uh, So body growth takes precedence over antler growth. Yes. But same thing with the fawns and like generally they say a, a, a mother so a two-year-old with fawns two-year-plus doe with fawns needs about 18 percent protein that's what some people suggest and studies suggest at least 18 with twins well if you look at a lot they of need a lot of milk to feed twins and think about occasionally they have triplets i'm gonna say and every one of those triplets has survived but if she's on a high enough good quality diet and habitat's good she can raise all three of them and if you look at a lot of the things that they eat there's a, a lot of that stuff has close to a 14 to 18, 20% protein content. Oh, yeah, content. like those first choice browse plants mm-hmm. in the spring and early summer, they're all nearly over 18, 20% protein. So, some of them, like in South Texas, like Wyocon and Kidneywood, are thinking are 24, 25% yes. protein that they're getting it. So there's a lot of them. Now, that protein content varies seasonally as you go into the winter. 
In late fall, the protein starts going down just because it's not growing. It's not well, right. everything goes down that time of the year, yeah. the digestibility. But what happens with deer that time of the year? They've weaned their babies. They have. And what do some of those plants so that it changes? Or what else happens at that time of year? It, incre- it goes down in protein, but it increases. And you mentioned it, uh, fiber. Yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it becomes less digestible for that reason uh, uh, for certain things. But uh, like I said, you, you got your babies weaned off. But now is the time of the need. Uh, that's the time of the year, I guess, that the males probably need more protein and all, being so they're breeding and fighting and everything else. Well, they mainly need their protein at the end of the like post rut. Yeah, you know when they're when they're run down in their body. You know, and this then, time of the year. Yeah, and then when they start growing their antlers. So as soon as they start growing the antlers, it's a good time to have protein out there. There's lots of studies that suggest that supplemental feed and protein will help when they start going into the rut. They generally don't need as much protein because they've gotten much of it from fat. Deer have a, deer are amazing as far as their ability to take all this stuff from the plants, take the, the, the stuff that we can't process in plants through their rumination and turn it into fat that they put on their rumps, even and put on their kidneys and everywhere. They can get real fat in the fall, and then when acorns start coming, and we'll get to this other stuff, but they'll put the fat on, and then they'll use that fat as a food source during winter because they're basically thinking about rut. The does and the bucks are thinking about rut. And so generally food, it's studied, food intake decreases in the winter, and they don't need as much protein during that time of year. Because they have the stores. Yes, the and, stores. Well, and I guess, you know, one of the main things that a that a, a buck deer needs protein for is for antler growth. Yes, yeah. And all the stuff that I've read and everything I've seen, like I said, it varies some of the but most everybody kind of is like 16% for optimum antler growth. That's what they need. For That's them. all they need. Yeah. That, like, I think they've done studies as far as op- antler growth, and, you know, fed them 18% or 20 or something, and really didn't see a significant difference. 16% for antler growth. But we just mentioned that some of your browse species out there are already in the 20s, and we just said mama with baby twins, she needs 18. You want that diversity again because some of your plants may only have 14 or 10. Like Yopon, I think even in the springtime, Yopon's like a probably a second-choice browse depending on the soils. I, I would even consider a third-choice browse plants depending, but Yopon does not have – I mean, even in the spring when it's actively growing, it's only got 12% protein. So think about that. A deer could survive and survive off that 12%. But it's not going to do well. It's not going to get optimum antler growth or optimum milk production at 12% even in the spring. And the rest of the year, summer, autumn, and winter, and this is crude protein, it's around 4 to 5%. That low. Protein, that low. Yeah, in, in protein. So they could survive off of it, but they're not going to do well on it. They're going to be in poor condition. Fawn crops are going to go down. Antler production is going to be. So if you've got, that's what I'm saying, if you've got a property out there and you don't have much diversity, all you've got is two species or maybe three species. You've got, you know, black hickory, post oak, blackjack oak, and yopon. You've got four browse plants to choose from. Most of their browse, three of them are probably trees and out of a deer's reach except they're really young ones. Right. And the rest is just yopon out there. Think about it from that standpoint. That's why diversity is key. Hey, well, what part of Texas was it we were talking about earlier where you mentioned that the only thing there is cedars and live oaks? Well, in the hill country, like in places that have been mismanaged, and I'm sorry, I, got a, I wanted to get back. I'm glad you brought that up because for mismanaged or, or the change in plant community due to whatever, lack of fire, you know, no too much uh, lack of fire, overgrazing, undergrazing. Well, speaking of fires, by the way, we have another one in Bastrop. 
Yeah, we we do. We sure do. But luckily they got it contained. You know, it didn't affect anything else. And that started from a prescribed fire, which we discussed uh, on one of them, which is, you know, say what you want to, you know, about that. And I don't want to get controversial in there, but like we said, that place is going to burn one way or the other. It's designed to burn. And so them doing those prescribed burnings, thank God it didn't get out of hand and burn something down. But had they not done that, a drought year comes it has a absolutely has that a was nothing to compared like to what it that's nothing what it could have been yes yeah 2011 was that was a bad one you know yes. so now they manage it but so places like little diversity the hill country is one of the most diverse places out there as far as good quality healthy they've got lots of good quality deer food out there but for whatever reason land use and they have lots of numbers of deer lots of numbers of deer but sometimes they have lots and lots of numbers of deer in poor quality habitat also some of the poorest smallest deer most dense populations of deer are in the hill country especially like west austin and around there where it's a lot of cedar breaks basically they've taken out fire or they've overgrazed with sheep and goats for generation after generation now they got a cedar break out there with some live oaks you know um that provides cover in abundance for deer and they can survive off live oak but they don't do as good and they don't get much hardly anything out of cedar and the live oak makes acorns but they're seasonal they're seasonal is the problem and the leaves the browse the leaves and twigs off of live oaks it's not really considered a first choice deer food it's yeah not, it's more of a second choice so uh and they're smaller acres on top of smaller it. acres but when they do produce deer love them and they produce a lot they of make those, a bunch those of plateau acres. live oaks they really get after so that's an important food source out there for those deer yeah. in the hill country i mean i don't know if we mentioned it too much or not but but the protein is such a big part of the hard antlers in deer. Body growth takes precedence over antler growth, so so they're going to use protein first for for body growth, and then what's left, I guess, they'll put toward antlers. So therefore, it's important to keep a to to be sure there's plenty of protein out there for this reason. Because if if you want to have a, a deer with nice antlers, you better take care of the 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 deer's body first. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think just harden antler, like after a deer sheds or after he hardens, you know, you take the analyze it. Just the hardened antler itself is made up of forty five percent protein. So think about that. That's nearly half. Forty five percent of that. That's what I've read somewhere. Yeah, I think uh, Doctor Brown out of A and M, you know, mentioned that in one of his studies. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and likewise, well, and calcium and phosphorus are there as well in yes. certain percentage, which we'll get to uh, yes. when we talk about uh, minerals. But yeah, protein's a big deal because, and, and a lot of it, the protein too, is because uh, amino acids and collagen. The velvet antler, when it's growing in velvet, it's made almost entirely of collagen, which is a type of protein. Mm-hmm. And so I guess when it hardens through, you know, mineralization and starts hardening, there's still a lot of protein in that hard antler. So, so you go to thinking about that. That may be why. Well, critters chew on it. You know, I don't know. You know, you see a lot of rodents and stuff, squirrels and rats. You know, I always figured it's for calcium and phosphorus. But if there is that much protein in a hard antler, maybe they eat it for that reason. I don't know. Like a lot of shed antlers you find have chew marks from rodents on it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and like we mentioned. That's men- just a guess. I don't know. But they do chew on antlers. No doubt about it. Talked about it before, you know, the young fawns and stuff. I mean, protein being important to them also because uh, uh, if you have a malnourished small deer, they probably don't ever catch up. No. Like we talked about in episodes before. Uh, so so protein's important not only for the for the big deer making antlers and for the doe making milk, but it's also important for the little babies that are growing. Yes. And so uh, hopefully you get all that out of habitat. Yes, hopefully uh, so. Uh, and so the next thing after protein, I guess we should mention, is energy, which when you think about energy, you think about fat. I think fat's um, 
two and a half times the amount of energy in it compared to carbohydrates. Yeah. Uh, fat fat has a lot of uh, a lot of energy. Uh, corn starch. This is where corn starches would come into play, I guess, uh, being a uh, maybe a good food source. I don't. I say good food source, but a, a, a good source of energy, I guess, for the winter time for feeding deer. Yeah, and energy is really interesting to me because I mean it's absolutely vital in maintenance and everything. And really, energy is just a property of all the other nutrients, uh, the proteins, the lipids, and the carbohydrates. They all have energy. They have they have carbs. Well, it's Water, what keeps you warm. It, it keeps you. It's what keeps your body warm. Yeah. It's what you know from metabolism and yeah. and uh, uh, very important for for a lot of reasons. Yeah. So, like you think of energy and carbohydrates, water, vitamins, and minerals don't have any of that. So they're getting this this energy from other sources. You know, from the food that they're eating. Yes. Yes. So that, it's the fuel that the body runs on. It, it's needed to metabolize all kinds of things. It is, but you know, while we're on the subject, and and you know, you mentioning, you, so there's essential amino acids, there's essential fatty acids that we have to have. But it's kind of, you know, it, it's weird. That I don't know if this this is kind of a, a right time to mention this or not. But there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. So you got to eat protein, you got to eat fat, but carbohydrates is one thing that you don't necessarily have to have. This is kind of off topic because this is on, I've, I personally have type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. Of course, sugar and energy is my enemy, you know. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, your liver makes sugar for you. And so that the, for the fact of the matter is you don't have to eat it. So your body will take will take fat and stuff and it'll make energy for you in, in, wow. in that way. So, so, uh, uh, so there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate for that reason. Uh, because your liver makes plenty of this. And so it's kind of weird to think about this, but if you drink a lot of alcohol, mm-hmm. okay, so your liver, like I said, uh, will crank sugar out for you. When you wake up in the morning, your liver starts making sugar. I mean, it, it's getting your body ready for the day. It's making energy. Mm-hmm. I have to take a shot of insulin in the morning just to cover the the the, the sugar that's being made by my liver for to get ready for the day. Sure. And so, if you drink alcohol like for a long time before insulin and all that, well, alcohol was a treatment for diabetes. Really? Yes. I didn't know yes. That. They they treated diabetes. They knew that for some reason it lowered blood sugars, and the reason it did was because it low it it numbed your liver's process of this gluconeogenesis or this making of this of sugar. Uh, and so it stopped this process, and so for that reason that you know, like you drink, it may be the reason that you feel better when you have a hangover. You know how if you you drink too much one night and you eat food the next day, then all of a sudden you magically feel better. Oh, I don't know if it's maybe because your body's starving from sugar or what it is, but the problem with it is then your liver has all this stored up sugar, and then the alcohol wears off and it just dumps all this sugar, and you can't take enough shots of insulin in order to cover huh. to cover that. Uh, but but when we talk about energy, it's kind of neat to think about that. Yes, it's important. But the, your body can make it for you, so you can get by without it, unlike you can with the proteins. Of course, cows can, I mean, ruminants can synthesize amino acids. We can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but energy is one of the things that, that, yes, you have to have it, but, yes, your body could also make it for you. Yeah, you know, it's just, it's critical in a lot of those other different processes why your body can make it. And then also deer can utilize it and get the energy, the carbs from the cellulose and the lignin through rumination, which we discussed. But it's basically the, the fuel that the body runs on. It's it's needed for maintenance. It's required to perform basic bodily functions such as breathing, heartbeat, digestion. Everything takes, you know, some form of energy. And we're, we're talking about energy, you know, everybody knows, but... If you've ever dieted or whatever, we're talking about calories. Yes. You know, so we're talking about a calorie is, is basically your energy. And a lot of your calories come from carbohydrates. Absolutely. Yes, and and uh, and so 
So what is a calorie exactly? Well, that's the amount of heat that's required to raise the uh, the temperature of one gram of water one degree Celsius. So so uh, that's kind of what they're talking about when they talk about a calorie and how it's related to heat. Uh, but in energy needs change. Uh, just like with the protein needs change with depending on age and all that type of thing you know i mean it's needed for gain if you want you need energy to help gain needed to build muscle bone fat tissue pregnancy it's required for a development of the fetus and other related uh natal tissues lactation so it takes you know they need protein they need minerals but they need the energy to process and fuel all this stuff so it's a giant system like i look at it like this you know i'm real big in ecosystem and ecosystem management biology well you know your body is nothing but a system the system's designed perfectly you know you gotta like in the biological world the system's designed perfectly you don't so much manage the system you manage everybody that uses the system well, your body, think of it as a system. It's made up of an organ system, you know, your respiratory system, your nervous system, your reproductive system, your lymph node system. All that's combined to make an organ system or what's called an organism. All this stuff's got to be working, functioning properly. You've got to have the right nutrients, the right Absolutely, and if right you take energy. one of them out, the system fails. Yes. Yes, yes you take out one variable and it really – it. The whole the whole system fails or or, or yeah, is weakened. They're they're dependent upon one another. Yeah, all the cogs, as Aldo Leopold says, all cogs must fit fit in the barrel perfectly. Yes, absolutely. And so so the energy energy needs do change. Uh, and energy, I mean, if you think about it, is used for every single thing. Basic body metabolism. Your cells. You burn energy just sitting there. You burn energy sleeping just in the maintenance and metabolism of mitosis. You know. Just your cell manufacturing and everything else. You use some form of energy. You know, this is kind of off the topic, but we just spoke, talked about this in a physics class this week. It's kind of odd to think about that no matter what kind of energy it is, whether it's gasoline, whether it's uh, sugar, whether it's hydroelectric, whether it's solar, whatever the type of energy is, at some point or another, it came from the sun. There's like there's oh, yeah. literally no energy on the face of the earth that ex- that that exists yeah. that doesn't have something How to cool do with that? the energy from the sun. I give a presentation over ecosystem management, you know, to co-ops and everywhere. And that's where I start out, and I start out with that bit of it, you know, because all energy on earth we got either from eating a plant itself directly or eating an animal that ate a plant, because plants have the unbelievable thank God that exists, or none of us would exist ability to do what's called photosynthesis exactly right energy from the sun and mixes it through this process of photosynthesis and produce carbohydrates sugars that deer can eat and do something with and then we can get that same energy that's from the sun from eating the deer yes or the the plant or the plant that the deer ate so every bit of energy i think some of us take a little cheat in the morning get a shot of coffee some caffeine for some extra energy but even that caffeine came from the sun way exactly right from the sun at some point because caffeine's made from a plant you know yes and and the gas in your car is from the the rotting decomposing plants over from centuries ago and fossil fuels are are uh uh, were one time were at one time plants or animals that type of thing which uh, once again all started from the sun uh uh, you got your hydro 
electric uh, uh, energy production, you know, from the, the dams. Well, that's all the water cycle. Yep. Well, how does the water cycle start? From energy from the sun, evaporating water, and causing rain, and you know the whole deal. It's quite an incredible system. Yes, yeah, law of conservation of energy. Energy yeah. can't be created or destroyed. It just keeps changing forms. Yeah, wow. Yes. Uh, so, anyways, while we're on the uh, topic of energy, I guess I thought I would throw that in there. Uh, but what would you say would be probably one of the time what would be one of the most uh what would be a time where deer would need the most energy uh, definitely for does uh, for does i would say when they're lactating yeah that's they need it high in energy but they need it throughout the year a lot and even in heavy winter time they need that energy to, to st- stay warm, stay warm yeah, that's so right that's why they go after corn a lot they don't need much protein but they need a lot of energy so when they do start and they don't eat as much but when they do start eating a lot of that stuff isn't high in um protein but it's high in fiber which they can get energy from so you know late winter they need some energy sources keep them warm and it differs it really does differ where you occur where you live where if you did if you're a deer that lives in saskatchewan in the winter time versus a deer down in south texas in the winter time the if you live in saskatchewan or michigan you need a lot more energy in the winter than the deer in south texas so it varies where you live how much energy like we said all this stuff varies seasonally age whatever but also the winters are much colder up there so deer require more energy than say a deer in south texas would not that deer don't need it in south texas still need it just don't need as much yes and people have spent lots of money figuring that out haven't they <laughs> yes yeah. yeah uh so so that kind of is a little bit there on energy uh, again most energy comes from the carbohydrates and the and the fats that are in a in a deer or any animal's diet i guess you would say and uh, that's going to bring us to, the, we've mentioned protein, we mentioned energy. I guess that brings us to minerals. Minerals, uh, yeah. And, macro and micro. Yeah, there's two different kinds, and I don't know a whole lot about mineral, you know, well, there's two. There. there's two main ones, Chancey. Yeah, macro, you know, of minerals. Yes, yeah, calcium and phosphorus. Those are the ones that most deer people are concerned with. But just give people about, minerals are basically, a, they're a function of weathering parent material in uplands and also the sediments dropped by flooding in bottomlands so the minerals are derived in your soils and then the plants can take them up but it all comes from your parent material but back like you said in deer we're mainly concerned with calcium and phosphorus because of antler growth and all and, kinds of other bodily functions and in the early days of of even animal science well calcium and phosphorus you had your 12 12 mineral that everybody put out for their cows well that was the calcium to phosphorus ratio mm-hmm. in that mineral and so 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 uh, uh calcium and phosphorus is you know it's important for bones and muscle and and teeth and and all it growth all these other things uh that's why it's two of the main ones i guess that people talk about yeah and the, the amounts they need who knows i think it varies on your soil types and whatever they don't need much because a lot of these are used for metabolism like sodium and mang- magnesium potassium you know for your sodium potassium ion pump and cellular you know function and stuff like that so don't may not need a whole lot or in large amounts but they tend to select plants that they get whatever they need. Well, and so wise. I'm going to throw this out there real quick while we're on the topic, and maybe we'll talk about it again one day when we talk about cattle. But, you know, sulfur is one of these minerals that we're talking about. And I remember 20 years ago being in an animal nutrition class, and, and of course, there's different types of salt blocks, and people come in all the time, and they ask, the, 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 well, give, me a yellow, give me a sulfur salt block, yellow salt block. They, mm-hmm. They're a yellow salt block. They have sulfur in it. And, uh, and there was a, there was a, a new nutritionist that I'll never forget him in one of these classes. And he said, nowhere in the state of Texas, is there a sulfur deficiency in the soils? 
So nowhere in the state of Texas is there a need for a sulfur salt block. And so I carried that with me all these years. And you would, you know, you would get somebody who's been ranching for 40, 50 years would come in and, and they would say, can I have a sulfur salt block? And I'd be like, hey, well, let me tell you this. Uh, there, there's there's an uh, animal nutritionist that told me 20 years ago that, that nowhere in the state of Texas is there a sulfur deficiency, that nowhere do you need to put, in Texas, do you need to put a sulfur salt block out? And he'd look at me and for a second, he'd be like, uh, you give me the young, sulfur salt block. <laughs> give me the yellow salt know, block. Yeah. You, yeah, and give me one of the red ones and one of the white ones. <laughs> yeah, just throw it all at them, you know. Uh, uh, that's a complete mineral program there. <laughs> put every color of salt block you can think of out there. But, but uh, uh, they all do serve a purpose, but so I say that to say that 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 I guess these guys have turned out to be to be right after all this time because now I, I don't know if you buy diesel or not for your truck, but what does a sticker say that's right there on the diesel pump? Ultra low sulfur diesel. Mm-hmm. Well, what does ultra low sulfur diesel not have in it? Sulfur. Okay, so we've taken all the sulfur out of diesel, so no longer are our tractors, or our diesel engines burning, are producing sulfur as a byproduct of combustion, which like we worried you know, decades ago. For years and years and years. For years years and years. So there's a sulfur source gone. Well, where else does sulfur produce? Coal power plants. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, a lot of sulfur. Yeah, I don't know if you remember Alcoa, but they had—I think they had those sulfur scrubbers on their on their exhaust outlets that were taking the sulfur out. Like at the end, there was trying to—I to, could be wrong, but I thought that's what I remember somebody saying was to take to clean the sulfur and other yeah. pollutants out of the yeah, out of the exhaust. But so that was a big source of sulfur, and so now, believe it or not, sulfur deficiencies are actually starting to show up in different places. Because we're removing those sources of sulfur That's uh, from the from the from the system, mm-hmm. you know, you go to talking about a system, and so now if you put if you if you grow weed or you grow a crop and and you add a little bit of sulfur to your fertilizer, uh, to your fertilizer application, man, you really see a big difference. Everything is much greener. Wow. Yes. Oh, yes. That's cool. Yes. Yes. So, anyways, that's not really deer related, but well, but, I'm sure uh, that they needed it some. I mean, that's necessary for amino acid formation, skin, hair, hoof, cartilage. Sulfur is. So they need sulfur at some. You know, and another thing that's important for hooves is iodine. Iodine. Yeah, Mm -hmm. iodine is also important for hoof health and that type of thing. And so uh, uh, that's a little bit about the macro minerals. And, of course, you also have the micro minerals uh, that are also sometimes called trace minerals too, I guess. And that's your things like zinc, manganese, copper, selenium, iron, you know, all those types of things that are important. Uh, for deer, and they probably pick them up a little bit everywhere. I'm sure. You know, they can get them from what they eat, the plants that they eat, the stuff they browse on. I mean, deer will lick on some things every now and then. I know that I've been around raising fawns, you know, and I used to come in sweaty, and the little fawn would just lick the dried sweat off my face. You know, For salt. Would, yeah, I think so. So they need sodium or salt. Or maybe she didn't need it, but she liked it. But they would really lick, you know, a lot. So, you know. Maybe she was deficient in whatever I was feeding, and she needed some salt or something. But well, I know that they will, so there's other ones, but it's like they know what they need. But back to I don't know a whole lot about the minerals and how much they need, and I don't know if anybody really does because it seems like the deer knows they figure it out. But the most that we're concerned with is, like you said, the 12-12, the calcium and phosphorus, because we know uh, they need that for antler growth, need it for bone growth, uh, Milk production, blood clotting, muscle contraction, and metabolism. And just the, what the, the heart and antlers have calcium and phosphorus in it, too. I mean, we need to mention this. Like, uh, once they get hard, that, that we said earlier that they're 45% protein. Well, 22% is calcium and 11% is protein. And that antler growth is so important. 
like we mentioned, that deer will take care of their body first and then do antlers later. But if they're insufficient in calcium and phosphorus, the bucks will actually go through like, like a state of osteoporosis and rob their skeletal system, rob it of calcium and phosphorus to put it in antler growth. It's that important. It's that imp- it ranks antler growth that imp- it, it that high. It ranks it that much because they need the antler growth to be, technically be fertile, you know, make them virile. They need a reproduction. So, yeah, you need to stay alive, but you also, if you want your population to stay alive, you need to be reproductive too. So, antlers is, like I said, they take care of their body first, but if their bodies are they're starved of those certain minerals, they'll, they'll utilize it, but they can get it back fast. So, even if they rob it through osteoporosis, they'll get it back that next spring once all the new growth starts coming, you know. Uh, if they don't have anything out there supplement, they'll get it back relatively quickly to to replenish their skeletal system i'm sure you know you like you mentioned to start off with if you have if you're providing a good habitat you're providing all these all, min- all these minerals and uh and vitamins that we're about to talk about yes. to them already it's there it, yes it's, they're not needed by they're not needed by the truckload no there's needed there's some they're needed in small amounts and 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 a good habitat provides all of this stuff it's it's yeah and like i said they're highly selective so i mean think about it like a lot of times minerals and vitamins and stuff and we're able to study them or on domesticated livestock, cattle, sheep, goats, like we know a lot about their requirements. But most of those animals, maybe not goats or sheep, but cattle, very few cattle these days are grazing like bison did, you know, on a native oh, range, able you, to move. They're mostly confined to pastures of improved grasses. So a monoculture. They're eating one thing. Yes, that's one thing a monoculture. That, that's a big problem. Yes. Yes, it is. It, and because and you're, you're inside of a fence, so what, what you give them is what they get, but a deer's going to jump over that fence yes. and go get whatever they need to get yeah and so if they live in a very diverse lots of plant diversity good quality habitat with all those limington factors you know nutrition is not a problem for deer but you take any of those out you know then they can be in in areas of bad nutrition usually if they're bad nutrition it's because they live in poor quality habitat yes and back to the to the cattle point you were making there about them being on a monoculture and trapped inside of a of a of a limited system there well uh in my opinion we uh we overuse vitamins and minerals in the in the livestock world mm-hmm. i mean if you you put out a you put out a good general use mineral well, it's formulated where the cow gets all the vitamins and minerals she needs every day. Sure. Well, then you buy a sack of cubes, and they've been formulated to provide all the vitamins and minerals that the cow needs for mm-hmm. the day. Well, then if you have a lick tub out there, it's got the vitamins and minerals formulated that they need for the day. And vitamins, good hay, too. And hay's, and the yeah. grass has vitamins and minerals. So I think it's beat, been beat. I think it's been beat to death. And, and vitamins and minerals are very expensive. Go go look how expensive a bottle of Centrum is in the grocery oh, store. Yeah. I mean, vitamins and minerals are high to add to a diet. So in my opinion, overly, overly, uh, overly uh, thought out, I guess you would say, and overly used a lot. In, in domesticated livestock but you don't see a deer mineral out there a whole lot and the reason for that is i guess is because they can jump over the fence they probably don't need it if they're and living them good they got a lot of plants to select from they probably don't need it they probably like don't they're already getting it and yeah. just like vitamins i mean mm-hmm. they're ruminants yeah so like you mentioned earlier do they do we even need to provide vitamin b or 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 uh uh vitamin c, c to a ruminant yeah no. absolutely not why not because they make it on their own. They make it on their own. How handy would that be? Yeah. I think the big ones with vitamins when talking about deer is A and E, which both help in the immune system and, you know, oxidation processes are big ones. 
But like I said, those vitamins are probably, they come from the parent material, you know, when it's your soil. So a lot of that stuff's there already. If you're in diverse, more than likely they're getting it. Yes, and vitamin D, of course, comes from the sunshine. Oh, sun, yeah. So if you stand in the sun, you know, you get plenty of that. Vitamin A and E both probably being the most important ones. And, and again, one more little important thing to point out there is that the vitamin C and vitamin D, or vitamin uh, B, B, I'm sorry, vitamin are both are both made by ruminants. So you don't those those are not even a need to be to be uh, uh, given to them. Uh, and so uh, so like you mentioned before, a quality habitat is of the utmost importance. Yes, yes. Uh, it provides if if you have a good habitat, it's providing pretty much everything that that deer needs. Nutrition wise, absolutely. And if you're managing your numbers, managing your if numbers. You, if you've got if you if you got the right numbers where your habitat could carry all of them, then then you're sitting in good shape. But in the case of of events where there's drought or events where, like you said before, is where I'm leading up to here is supplemental feeding. Yes, supplemental uh, feeding. Oh. I, I, in my like I said, I think you know as long as you it's exactly what it says a supplement to a healthy habitat all those things lined up i believe i know i think that's been proven i've worked on 20 years of ranches that having good quality habitat and also providing a supplement out there whether it be food plots or cotton seed or you know uh, pelleted feed or all three it helps not a doubt in my mind it especially helps it gives them a little boost it's just like if you were trying to be extra healthy and taking a supplement you know it helps them it helps with lactation helps with antler growth helps with everything so absolutely and know. it's too expensive to be used as a primary source no as a primary source you go broke feeding it and then not only that if you're doing it as a primary source you know those like i said in wet years generally protein feed if you're doing all that and good quality have in wet years it goes down you know and that tells you that there's something in those plants. Those deer are like just fine, you know, like all those first choice browse plants. They're super high in protein, you know, but it can be really important when you got a drought and you don't have many forbs. So that food source is gone for a deer. And then if it's a bad drought, maybe it hadn't started killing your woody browse yet, but that woody browse isn't putting on new growth. So in a really bad drought, it might not die, but it's not growing long root shoot tips. It might just put on leaves. Yes. Well, the shoots tip, that what I'll call the apical meristem, that growing part of that plant, that's the most highly nutrition. That's where most of the protein is. That's where most of the energy is. That's what deer seek out the most. When a bad drought, a lot of plants won't do that. They just sit there and like, you know what, I'm not going to grow. I'm just going to maintain. Uh, and so if that's not out there, that's another uh, high-quality source of food that's not available. Now, the food is still there, but like we talked about, those protein contents change in those plants varying season whether spring and summer it's higher but in winter it's low well if they're not growing in the spring and summer too much they're just maintaining not putting on long shoots uh protein can definitely help our supplemental that's feed where can, supplemental feeding can definitely comes in help absolutely yes. and so if you're gonna supplemental feed and right now is a good time what's that right now would be a good time yes. with the limited uh yes. the limited grazing that we have out there right now yeah the, due to the cold weather due to the uh parts of the area is dry there's lots of reasons right now yeah, there just ain't much out down, there the ruts have gone down most of your does are bred i think you know a lot of people say you know think differently i think i think well may not be a study out there that i know of that can cite but my observation from being there and watching it year after year and talking to people that I trust, it's a good idea to put it out right now. It seems to really help, especially 
on deer that have run down, you know, or something like that, or if your bucks went through a long rut or something, for whatever reason. Yes. It's a good idea to put it out right now. And a good time to put it out now and then kind of end it right before deer season starts again yeah, next year, you know, a month there, or so there's ahead. There's some people that will feed you around if you have that means. Like I said, we mentioned last time, I, I don't think you need to feed you around because, that, number one, deer consumption, deer feed goes, they just stop eating as much. They still, they don't eat as much in the wintertime. Then they don't need as much protein in the wintertime. And then number three, if you're managing your deer herd correctly, you're always going to have some level of harvest that needs to be done every year, depending on your farm crop. Yes. And so if you've got protein feed out there year-round and you're trying to harvest as well, I don't like shooting deer at protein feeders because I want them to feel free to go and come as they want. So I don't ever recommend hunting deer at protein feeders. And if you've got protein out there and you're trying to get some does harvested or something, and you've got protein there that's year all night long, they can feed at night or when during hunting. So they kind of, not so much deer become nocturnal, especially bucks. I know that they will become like during hunting or even does but trying to shoot them. They mainly learn how to adapt to hunters. They become, they, they learn how to avoid hunters where, versus them becoming blowout nocturnal. So if it's that out there, not in the winter when you try to harvest them, it makes them a little bit easier to kill. I'll say that, you know, because if you've got filet mignons out there that you can eat every day at night, yes, then, it, you know, why would I go eat this 8% corn that, Isn't is, that, that the just came spit out of this little whirly feeder <laughs> that i got to compete with other deer coming to eat? You Absolutely. Because I've been over there all night long eating protein. So, <laughs> you know, so yeah. that's one reason. Number one, you know, they don't eat as much anyway, but they will still eat. So it can if you got a lot to shoot, it can make it easier to to achieve your harvest goals by not feeding protein year-round. Uh-huh. And so, basically, in a nutshell, save yourself some money. Yeah. And and keep watch your deer numbers to, yes. to where your habitat provides everything that they need. Mm-hmm. That's my thing. I mean, and uh, like we mentioned before, uh, supplemental feed, it, it may decrease or will decrease on really wet years. On drought years, it can be very, very important, super important. As we mentioned, it should never be used to increase the pop, your carrying capacity on your land. And one other thing that we need to mention with supplemental feed, and we'll get on to this later with management, is uh, supplemental feed, it's got some negatives too, you know, of it. Like it can increase the carrying capacity. That's a huge negative. Um, it can, you know, people say increase disease because they're feeding it the same, you know, their mouth-to-mouth contact. Oh, yes, the there is that problem too. parasites. So, you know, there's a lot of issues with supplemental food. But then also one that we deal with constantly and see all the time if you're out there studying and watching your deer, artificially feeding out there will increase your coon population. Oh, my gosh. You will get, so artificial feeding will artificially increase the, you know, supplemental feed will artificially increase the coon population. That's something else you need to deal with, too. Those are you know? the smartest animals that I've ever <laughs> well, seen. They're adaptable, that's for they, sure. <laughs> we, years ago, we had a, a barn we were keeping our feed in, and we had kept our feed in there for, for a year or two, and nothing ever bothered it. Well, all of a yeah. sudden, a coon started getting into it. Yep. So we said, we'll fix this. We'll put a rock on top of a bag, <laughs> bag and keep it closed. Well, yeah. he knocked the rock off. And then we said, well... Well, we'll put it up on top of the tractor seat, and we'll put it up there where he can't get to it. Well, then they climbed up there and got to it. So we'll bring a barrel and put it inside of a barrel and put a lid on it. Well, they knocked the lid off of the barrel. Yeah, so finally we had to put like a 50-pound rock on top of the barrel lid inside the barrel to keep the coons out of it. Yeah. Yeah, they find a way. They do find a way, and they can be, while well, we're mentioning those coons, especially if you got, you know, as a management goal, I think it's, you know, a good idea to target from a predation standpoint if your management goals are for, you know, managing meson mammals for 
quail or whatever you know nest predators are you got to manage them from a feed protein standpoint as well and they are ferber so there's some laws that go but if you're going to target them right now is a good time to be doing coon you know sure it yeah, is getting, and, and another thing too where a lot of people mess up you see eight coons on your trail camera eight coons that's the minimum number of traps you need to set so many times people mess up whether it's coons get into your feed bin or if it's coons you know going to your feeder they run in little gangs they're running little little posses you know of family right? groups usually it's not one coon unless it's those old boar coon most of the time you're dealing with a sow and that year's kits so there might be five six seven eight well, what, a lot of times where people mess up, got that many coons, they go and they put one trap out or two traps out there. That means two of them get caught, and then the other six of them watch them get caught and see them distress and see them freak out. They don't. Then they learn to avoid that trip. So coons are like super duper easy to trap until you stop trapping them. And most of the time, it's because they learned, just kind of like hog trapping. You don't want to see them distress. So the key is if you got eight coons coming to your feeder, you got eight coons causing the problems, set 10 traps because you want to catch all of them at once. That way, two of them or three of them don't get caught and their brothers and sisters see them and like, it's kind of a learned behavior in that yeah, way. Absolutely, it's a learned behavior. Yeah. I never really thought about yeah. it that way. They're that smart. Well, it's a learned behavior. That's not so much that they're uh, that smart, I think. It's they associate that with. Freaking out, danger, you know, uh -huh. all of a sudden. You know, I never really you know, thought about it that way. caught in a trap, technically he's not being hurt, but he distresses. I mean, think of how You've been free and wild your whole life, and all of a sudden you're caught in a cage trap, and you can't go nowhere. <laughs> you're going to squeal. You don't forget that. Yeah, you don't forget that. And your buddy that's sitting there next to you watching you freak out, he don't forget it. Like, hey, Steve walked into that trap. He started freaking out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not <laughs> coming back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll come back, but I ain't going in there. Exactly. Yeah, that's why... Why can't I catch the coons no more? I know they're coming. Well, it's because most of the time they, they've learned to. So is a different type of trap maybe? Does that help out sometimes? Yeah, to change it up. You know, a lot of people just go and they'll set one or two live traps, but then, you know, they catch one or two, and then they don't catch the rest of them. This problem still exists. So one I, of the things out there that's really handy is what they call a DP trap, a dog-proof trap. It's very safe. Dogs can't get into it, won't hurt. It's designed on a coon being curious, just the very nature of him wanting to reach his hand down into something and grab yeah. something. So it's designed like that. So a coon reaches his hand in there to get his goodies, and then he gets caught, and nothing else can reach their hand in there or paw in there and get it. So they're super efficient, really good for managing coons. Another thing important about them, coons, is don't just go out there the first night, set the traps, and then get them with something to feed. Put the traps out there and trick them. You know, most mammals, Leave them open? Leave them open but baited so uh -huh. they get used to it for at least a night. This this goes with trapping mice and rats, too, especially rats. Rats are what's called a, oh, neophobic or something. Basically, if they see see new things in their environment, they kind of a little shy, iffy about shy it. Away, coyotes especially kind of shy away with it for a little while. But just leave it out there, feed it, let them get used to seeing it, and then feeding it, coming and go. Coons, you only really need to do it for a night or two. Get them get used to it and then set it that night and bait it and with them set, and then you'll usually catch all of them. You, you want to catch all of them that first night. I never thought about so, that with a rat trap. Yeah, rats especially, because rats are definitely neophobic. So you set a trap out there, leave it out there the night before, you know, just bait it and, and let him get used to eating. Like, bait it and then check it. If the, feed's, if the food's still on there, the bait's still on there, let it sit. Don't mess with it. Don't move it. Don't do anything. Just let it sit. Once he starts eating it, bait it again, and then if he eats it, gets used to it, then bait it and set it, and you'll catch him. Never thought about it yeah. that way. 
Yeah. Yeah, and and I can't wait for the next person to actually come in the feed store to buy one buy one of these coon traps. Because I'm gonna say, how many coons do you got, buddy? <laughs> you just thought you needed one of them. Hey, look, talk, talk oh, to you your have twenty of them. Oh. <laughs> talk to your suppliers at Bradley, and, and you, it's a big good idea, especially with anything, to start carrying some DPS. There's several different brads you can pick and choose, but you can buy them by the dozen. They come in a dozen, and you know, uh, dog proof track, dog traps. dog proof trap. They call them DPS. Lots of different brands. But they're specific for catching coons, and they're very safe. Can't catch a dog in them. Really, the only things I've ever caught in a DP is uh, possums. Possums will stick their hands in every now and then in coons. And I've heard of gray fox stick this paw in there once before, but very rare, you know. But even then, the good thing about it is it doesn't damage the thing. You can release them, and their foot's not, you know. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it doesn't hurt them, you know. So that's a good way to do it. For coons especially. Yeah, it's adapted. They're made specifically for a coons, the biology of them, just to wants to stick his hand in something, grab it, and pull it out. Is know? now the time of the year to be doing all yes. that? Because right now all the varmint hunts are going on. Yeah, now's a good there, time. There was a be, couple of them in the last couple of weeks. As soon as, as soon as your harvest is done and you start feeding protein again, it, like I said, winter's time is kind of a hard time, even for coons. You know, there's not much berries, not, no eggs, to, you know, nest eggs to... Eggs and nests to raid, you know, if, if they're upland coons, they're not in the creeks, you know. So it's also a hard time for coons. So coons are really targeting your protein feed right now, too. So now, not only that, too many coons, deer will shy away from them. Kind of like hogs. If you got 8, 10 coons that just crawl up underneath a protein feeder and just hog it all off, the deer kind of stand back and don't even want to mess with it too much. So that's another That's something you coons. don't think about. That's another issue with coons. And I think we'll get into more of that. Especially when we need to have a discussion on just supplemental feed, you know. Oh, absolutely. There's a whole world yeah, of stuff there. Yeah, a whole world. And different strategies to, to help increase intake and stuff like that. Sure, there's lots of things you could do there. Yeah, but that's just some little stuff on coons right now because that's something this time of year that you need to be thinking about. Ain't that the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I guess, Chance, we probably need to end it with that. Yeah, yeah, that, that covers it. Like I said, the big points, y'all, you know, remember woody plants are your backbone. They're broke down into... First choice, second choice, third choice plants. If you see a lot of use being done on your second and third choice pro- plants, you got a problem. You may be looking at a die-off coming because those plants are telling you something. Those deer just don't normally target those, you know, unless the habitat's poor or there's not enough diversity. So it goes back to three most important things in deer management, habitat, habitat, and habitat. And that's... And nutrition in a nutshell. <laughs> what are one of these uh, species that you could look at that you're like, oh, my God, deer eating that? Probably got too many deer. A uh, yopon around yopon, here. Yopon, that, that yeah, is yopon. where it would be. Yeah, yopon for sure is one that I look at. But blackjack oak, coral bear, mesquite. If you ever see a deer, not a bean, they will readily eat the mesquite fruit. The oh, those are good food, yes. Great food. They good groceries there. Yeah, June, July, or in July, you know, we've shot deer and gone through their room full of mesquite beans. But the leaves... You know, I've never seen I, – I would think a deer would have to be very, 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 very hungry to have to try to make it off a mesquite leaf. But in South Texas, persimmon, you know, things like that. So a supplemental are, feed might be needed there if you know, start needed, to notice yeah, deer. The, the first thing is uh, to try to improve habitat conditions, mm-hmm. try to get more quality, better habitat. You may have to reduce deer numbers. A lot of times it's a factor of stocking. You know, you might have too much. So, you know, I hate to say it, they talk about, you know, you may have to shoot in some of those places that are really overstocked. You may have to kill a lot of deer to get them within the carrying capacity of the habitat. And then even that, those woody plants, they're not created overnight, you know. So if you're starting 
got that's where supplemental feed and food plot can really come in you know and really really help so sure something to think about using used as a supplement to good habitat absolutely well hey guys i guess we're out of time for today and and uh, uh we appreciate you listening in and thank you for all the comments that we've gotten from everybody it's uh it's a joy getting together with chancy and doing this no it is a lot of fun and we enjoy it and we enjoy putting it together y'all so i i hope i, I know like i said none of us are dear nutritionists but that's kind of it in a nutshell and i hope y'all got something out of that you know absolutely and and i guess this is it till we talk to you guys again next week so uh in the meantime i hope y'all y'all have a good one and thank y'all again for joining us and i guess we'll talk to y'all next week talk to you soon bye-bye